So author Mark Batterson tells the story of the third largest earthquake that was ever recorded by a seismograph uh, back in December 26th of 2004. Um, it measured 9.1 on the Richter scale. And the shock waves produced tsunami waves more than 100 feet in height, traveling 500 miles per hour and reaching a radius of 3,000 miles. The deadliest tsunami in history claimed 227,898 lives. But one people group living right in its path miraculously survived without a single casualty. The Moken are an Austronesian ethnic group that live on the open seas from birth to death. Their handcrafted wooden boats called kabang function as houseboats for these sea gypsies. Moken children learn to swim before they learn to walk. They can see twice as clearly underwater as landlubbers and if there were an underwater breath holding contest it would be no contest. But it wasn't any of these special skills that saved them from the tsunami. What saved them was their intimacy with the ocean. The Moken know its moods and messages better than any oceanographer, reading ocean waves the way we read street signs. And on the day of the earthquake, an amateur photographer from Bangkok was taking pictures of the Moken when she became concerned by what she saw. As the sea started to recede, many of the Moken were weeping. They knew what was about to happen. They recognized that the birds had stopped chirping, the cicadas had gone silent, the elephants were headed toward higher ground, and the dolphins were swimming farther out to sea. Fishermen in the same vicinity as the Moken were blindsided by the tsunami and had no survivors. They were collecting squid, one of the Moken's survivors said. They don't know how to look. The waves and birds and cicadas and elephants and dolphins were speaking to these fishermen, but sadly, they don't know how to listen, he said. They don't know how to look. They don't know how to listen. Do you know how to look and listen to warnings about the future? That's precisely what Daniel chapter 11 is for us. It is a loving warning from God concerning the future of his people, both from the perspective of the 6th century before Christ, but throughout all of time, even our time. So first we're going to listen to the warning from the perspective of those people in the 6th century, around 536 BC, but then we also want to listen to the warning from our vantage point. This is a warning for us as well. So if you'll open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11, find your way there. I'll pray for us briefly. Lord, have mercy on us now. By your spirit and your word, strengthen us so that we will be faithful even in the hard times. And we ask this, Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen. So the book of Daniel is written to a people who are long-suffering They've been in captivity to Babylon for 70 years before Babylon fell, just three years before this vision in, in chapter 11. In chapter 11, Daniel receives a vision of the future that plays out through five different empires or kings' lives. And all of these empires are future from Daniel's vantage point in 536 B.C. 
So everything you read in chapter 11 is future. The prophecies that Daniel receives concerning those first three empires play out over the next 400 years with stunning accuracy um, in the histories of Persia and then Greece and then Egypt and Syria. Scholar John Goldengay says that Daniel 11 refers in a specific, historically identifiable way to 13 of the 16 rulers of these last two kingdoms of Syria and Egypt that took place between 322 and 163 BC. So again, that's 200 to 400 years in the future, essentially, that this vision in Daniel is projecting and predicting uh, election outcomes, right? We can't do it the night of the election, but they're doing it three to 400 years in the future. Um, The ESV Bible shows this crazy chart um, of a fuller accounting of all the future kings that have their reigns foretold in Daniel chapter 11. I know you can't read it, but every little block of letters is a king whose reign is prophesied and then came to pass in Daniel 11. Um, one writer says that in 30, the first 35 verses of, the cha- of chapter 11, 135 prophecies have been fulfilled. 135 in 35 verses. Now, these prophecies have proven so accurate that some have suggested these just can't be prophecy. Um, they must have been written after the fact. They're too accurate to have been written so far in the futures. And so what they do is say Daniel really wasn't written in the 6th century B.C. It must really have been written down in the 2nd century B.C. and look back at these events. But and many, but not, not all scholars, but many scholars who hold that view are pushed there because they simply cannot believe in a God who so knows and controls the future of nations at this level of detail. Um, there was a former Princeton professor, his name was Sibley Towner, and this is what he said. He said, we need to assume that the vision as a whole is a prophecy after the fact. Why? Because human beings are unable accurately to predict future events centuries in advance and to say that Daniel could do so, even on the basis of a symbolic revelation vouchsafed to him by God and interpreted by an angel, is to fly in the face of the certainties of human nature. So what we have here is in fact not a roadmap of the future laid down in 6th century BC, but an interpretation of the events of the author's own time, which he says is in the 2nd century BC. The problem with that kind of thinking is this is precisely one of the things that sets Yahweh apart from all other gods and idols and exalts him as the true God. He knows the future and he brings it to pass. Listen to how Yahweh challenges idols to declare the future from the prophet Isaiah's lips. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or to declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. And then a couple chapters later, God declares, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, 
saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. So true gods, that is to say the one true God, knows and determines the future. That's what marks him out as God. One of the overarching purposes of this super detailed prophecy we're going to look at in chapter 11 is to demonstrate God's knowledge and control of the future of all of history down to the details. And we'll see that uh, to great degree today. So this is our great assurance from Daniel chapter 11. The one who loves us is the one who controls all of history, ours included. It's really good theology when we sing the lyrics, he's got the whole world in his hands. Okay. Um, because it's true, and it's no coincidence that this lyric comes to us from the tradition of a people greatly oppressed and taken into captivity themselves, African-American slaves. Because the teaching of the sovereign grasp of all history in the hands of the God who loves us is intended to give a suffering people hope. Now another purpose for this one-of-a-kind prophecy in Daniel 11 is to ready God's people for more long-suffering in the face of a history that often is not tipped in our favor. And this has been the great purpose of Daniel. Both the stories of Daniel's faithfulness and the visions of long-suffering of God's people they're intended to steal and strengthen our hope so that we suffer, though we would suffer greatly as we wait for that hope. Okay. Now, if you've had a chance to read this chapter, I, I hope that you read the chapter ahead of time before you come to church. It really makes me a lot better preacher if you read the chapter before you come to church. Um, you may have showed up this morning just to see what on earth is he going to do with this ancient history lesson and how is he going to turn that into a sermon. One commentator said this, this chapter might be treated in Bible classes. We do not see how it could be used for a sermon or for sermons, right? So there's that. I, I'm not even honestly going to be able to read you the entire chapter this morning. There, there's, it's a huge 45, 47 verses. Um, and let alone explain every jot and tittle of fulfilled prophecy here. I'll post a resource on the leader blog this week that does that for all you ancient history nerds. Um, I'll, I'll lay it all out there for you and you can chase it down. But what I'd like to do this morning is drop in on each of these empires or reigns of kings that are focused on in Daniel 11 and show you an example or two of amazing fulfillment that happens during each of those uh, um, empires. So... This is part of the last vision in the book of Daniel. We're about to wrap up the book of Daniel. Chapter 10 was the introduction to this vision. Chapter 12 is the beautiful, hopeful conclusion of it. This is the meat of it in, in chapter 11 of the vision itself. And it spans the time from the 6th century B.C. all the way to the end of time with its grasp. Okay. Um, Dr. Aiken from Southeastern Seminary, in his helpful commentary, connects the different visions of Daniel this way. He says, four great empires in relation to Israel were described in the visions of chapter 2 and chapter 7. Medo-Persia, uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. In Daniel 8, the vision narrows the focus to two, 
Medo-Persia and Greece. Those same two empires are the interests of the angel at the beginning of Daniel 11. However, this time they don't get a chapter. They only get four verses. And truth be told, they only get three because the first verse actually looks back to chapter 10. So let's start in verse two and we'll skip through these first couple of empires. Now I will show you the truth, the angel says. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So the Persian Empire literally gets one verse here in this vision. And it accounts a number of kings that will play out in the Persian Empire and provoke Greece to the um, Grecian-Persian wars that history is replete with. And just like that, though, we move on to the next empire. We're into Greece in verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So every... Virtually every Bible commentator who reads these passages sees in this uh, Grecian king, Alexander the Great. Um, There's some pretty remarkable correspondence. Um, He achieved an unprecedented domination from Italy to India in unbelievable time. But suddenly, at age 33, he died in 323 B.C. So again, We're 200 years into the future with this prophecy. He left behind two young sons, but these boys were ultimately both murdered, and the world was carved up between Alexander's powerful generals. So he has no posterity, and his kingdom is given to others, the four winds of heaven, these four generals. So there's remarkable correspondence here and in earlier chapters, prophecies that predicted the coming a couple hundred years later of Alexander the Great. Um, who reigned over Greece from just for about 10 years, starting in 336. So we're 200 years in the future at this point in time. Now the vision's focus is going to narrow from Greece broadly to um, two of Alexander's successors. The king of the south, that's Egypt, and the king of the north, that's Syria. And it's quite a cast of characters. Here's a summary of all the kings that are a part of this portion of history that was predicted in these 15 verses from verses 5 to 20. You've got Ptolemy I, and I'll just read their their other names. Soter, Philadelphia, Eurgetes, Philopater, Epiphanes, Philometer. And then we go to the kings of the north, and we find all these kings are going to be fulfilled in this reading. Nicator, Soter, Theos. Kelic, that guy, Serenus, Magnus, Philopater, and last but not least, Epiphanes. Uh, baby names, anyone? Uh, if you're looking for a baby name, maybe? A little Philopater running around the church? <laughs> so, you know, it's funny, but I had, a, I had a seminary professor who literally named, he had like eight cats, and he named them all after some of these ancient kings. So his children would learn the names of the kings, right? Academics, what are you going to do with them, right? Just a little crazy. Um, But uh, verses 5 through 12 now focus on those kings of the south. And they would be known as the Ptolemies in in Egypt. And every verse is littered with detailed historical 
fulfillment. One of the most intriguing ones is down in verse 6 and 7. Look at, look at these verses with me. The king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. And after some years they shall make an alliance. Pay attention here. There's an alliance made. And the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. So he gives his daughter in marriage. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. So the alliance doesn't work out. She shall be given up. This is her demise. And her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times also uh, find their demise. So um, Pastor Skip Heitzig has kind of a folksy way of putting these things, and I'll, I'll quote him at length here. He said, here's the deal. The Ptolemaic dynasty down south grew stronger quicker, but not for very long. Eventually, the northern kingdom of Syria became also very strong, and there's tension between the north and south. To ease the tension, now he's just explaining history here, but watch how it corresponds to these verses in your text. Um, to ease the tension, an alliance was made. And the way alliances were made in those days, one of the kings would give his daughter to the other king as a wife, because now that's going to mean we're going to treat each other well. And you hope that works out. Sometimes there's more drama than peace, and that's what happens here, he says. The guy down south, Ptolemy Philadelphus, gives his daughter Berenice to the king of Syria named Antiochus Theos. Now, the only problem is the king of the north is already married. He has a wife. So he's given the daughter of Bernice, uh, the daughter who is Bernice, this young, beautiful girl, as his second wife. No problem, he's the king, he divorces his first wife, marries Bernice. Well, his first wife doesn't think too highly of that, so she kills the new wife and her attendants and poisons her husband. So, as the verse predicts, the whole alliance falls apart. Again, there's stunning correspondence between what secular historians describe and the predictions that Daniel gives hundreds of years in advance in this vision, or is given to Daniel in this vision. The alliance by marriage is predicted. The alliance's failure is predicted. Her death is alluded to. Her brother's ascension to the throne will be envisioned. This is a pretty precise statement for a 300-year election forecast, which is basically what we have going on here. They're telling us who's going to be king 300 years in the future. Now, the next section in verses 13 to 20 focus on the king of the north. These are the Seleucids of Syria. Now, there's another really detailed fulfillment that goes on down in verses 16 through 19. Drop down there with me. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills. This is the rulers of, of the north. And none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land. That's a reference to Palestine, to Israel, with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him, and then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. So let me draw on Dr. Aiken's summary of all of this as it plays out amazingly now these 300 years later. In the annals of history from the empire of Syria, this is how it corresponds. Watch your text uh, in your Bibles for corresponding phrases as Dr. Aiken kind of explains this. We're going to get way down in the weeds here. Okay. With the defeat of the Egyptians at Sidon, Antiochus 
acquired complete control over Phoenicia and Palestine and will do whatever he wants. That's the phrase from verse 16. Indeed, no one can oppose him. Although Palestine had come under Antiochus' control briefly before, now the beautiful land of Palestine would become a permanent possession of the Syrian Empire. With total destruction in his hand, that emphasizes his complete power over the land. The Syrians forced terms of peace upon the Egyptian king in verse 17. To seal the deal, Antiochus gave his daughter, Cleopatra, not that Cleopatra, to Ptolemy V as a wife. Antiochus hoped that through Cleopatra he would gain further control of Egypt. However, his plan did not succeed. Cleopatra loved her husband more than her father and supported the Egyptian cause completely. Verse 18 to 19, then prophesy Antiochus' defeat and end. Having defeated the Egyptians in 197 BC, Antiochus turned his attention to the coast and islands, as it says there, countries around the Mediterranean in verse 18. And after Antiochus had some initial success, he captured many. A guy named Lucius Cornelius Scipio was sent against him by the Roman government. This is a commander who will put an end to his taunting, and instead he will turn his taunt against him or his insolence against him. In 191 BC, the Romans, fighting with their Greek allies, routed the Syrians at Thermopylae and forced them to withdraw from Greece and flee to Asia Minor. 30,000 Roman troops pursued Antiochus into Asia, defeated his much larger army of 70,000 at the Battle of Magnesia near Smyrna, Turkey in 190 BC. And after this humiliating defeat, Antiochus returned to his country where he was killed by an angry mob in 187 BC as he sought to pillage the temple of Zeus. And he indeed stumbled, fell, and was no more, as verse 19 says. So there is this kind of recitation of detailed fulfillment historically of these predictions we could go on and on and on okay I'll spare you but I'll post that for those of you who are those history geeks and want to read those this week every single verse in this chapter has this remarkable truly divine correspondence with history that's taking place 300 years later now the question is why would you spend 15 detailed verses on a pretty inconsequential section of ancient history. First of all, remember, it wasn't history when it was written. It was future, and it was a prophecy of the future of God's people, and it was to forewarn them of suffering that was to come at the hands of the king of the north and the south. Okay, check out this map. The king of the north is in the north. And the king of the south is in the south. I did go to seminary for these kinds of insights, okay? But right in, notice what's right in the middle. Israel is stuck in between these two warring, conflicting nations. And every time they invade one another's territory, they, they romp through Israel. One, uh, one writer put it this way. They said, these two empires will play political ping pong with the nation of Israel for almost 175 years. So all of this detail is part of God's care for his people. This is their future. And it is intended to give them hope and help them endure when long-suffering will be required at the hands of these two nations, two empires, rather. And it helps set up what follows in the, in the remaining verses because the remaining verses are really the main focus of the chapter. Because after spending 15 verses 
on a slew of kings over 150 years, the pace of prediction really slows way down and the focus is now going to be on just one king, just one. Professor Dale Davis says, we notice that verses 2 through 20 cover matters from 530 to 175 B.C. Basically, from Cyrus to Antiochus the Great, 355 years in 19 verses. However, the verses we're about to look at, 21 to 35, cover events with a span of 175 to 163 B.C., 12 years. The tenure of Antiochus Epiphanes, 12 years in 15 verses. The single reign of Antiochus Epiphanes gets essentially equal space with the 350 plus years before him. And you're you're about to see why that is. We'll meet Antiochus Epiphanes in verse 21. And in these next 15 verses, things go from bad to worse for God's people. Look at verse 21. It's talking about Antiochus. In his place shall arise a contemptible person, a contemptible person, to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flattery. So he's a contemptible person. This is his legacy. Other versions of the Bible call him a vile person, a despised person, or as both the Net Bible and that esteemed source of all things scholarly, Daffy Duck put it, he's a despicable person, right? His name is Antiochus Epiphanes IV, and Epiphanes was the title he gave to himself. It means manifest, the manifest one, or perhaps even God made manifest. He was a very humble uh, ruler, as, as you'll see. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. The Jews called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means the madman. One commentator called him Crepus Maximus. Because okay, you're going to find out that is exactly who this guy was. Um, this is his legacy. He is a despicable person. Let me show you why. Drop down to verse 31. Antiochus' forces will rise up and profane the fortified sanctuary. It's a reference to the Jewish temple. Stopping the daily sacrifice, their worship of the one true God. And in its place, he will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Then with smooth words, he will defile those who have rejected the covenant. But the people who are loyal to their God will act valiantly. Again, Pastor Skip Heitzig summarizes this in kind of everyday language. He says, here's what happened historically regarding Antiochus. Antiochus placed soldiers around the temple area forbidding people to worship, forbidding people to sacrifice. On one Sabbath, he sent his soldiers to the city of Jerusalem to kill as many babies as they could find. On another occasion, they went to the city of Jerusalem to kill as many women as they could find. He made idolatry mandatory, erecting a statue of Zeus and killing a pig on the altar of sacrifice, forcing the Jewish priests to eat pork, sprinkling the juices of the pig all around the temple, desolating it and desecrating it. And then he made nudity public, taking what he called as athletes and parading them nude in full view of the temple mount area. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. Notice, though, how verse 32 ended So amidst all this intense persecution of God's people, it says there are some, the people who are loyal to their God, who will act valiantly. And some believe 
This is a reference to some deliverers who would come, a group of Hasmonean priests led by Judas Maccabeus. This has actually happened in history. They revolted against the Syrians and reestablished proper worship in the temple around 164 BC. Uh, They call it the Maccabean Revolt. And uh, it's still celebrated to this day in the Jewish feast of Hanukkah. Hanukkah is all about driving out Antiochus Epiphanes and the Syrians and reestablishing worship in the temple. Um, But before we leave this section that focuses in on Antiochus and look at the last of the empires that chapter 11 prophesies about, don't skip verse 35. It gives us a glimpse of God's purposes in all of this. It says, and some of the wise shall stumble, so some of God's people will fall and suffer, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white or cleansed until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So what it's saying is God is at work amongst his people through their suffering to refine and purify and cleanse them. Peter says something similar directly to us in 1 Peter when he says, in this you rejoice though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So so we can never make complete sense out of suffering when it happens to us. But we can trust that our God, who is Lord of all of history, the good and the bad, wields that history for the good of his people. This is the promise that he has made to his people. And so now we've gone from bad with the kings of the north and the south to worse with Antiochus Epiphanes. Now we go from worse to the absolute worst in the closing verses of the prophecy from verse 36 to 45. Look at verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay any attention to any other god for he shall magnify himself above all. And while this king, this closing king, sounds a lot like Antiochus Epiphanes, he actually seems to go beyond him. He's even darker, as hard as that is to believe, and not all the details about this king will fit nicely into Antiochus' life. Um, But we have a clue. In verse 40, if you'll look in your Bibles at that, it says that this, what follows, takes place at the time of the end. In addition, we're going to see next week in the first four verses of chapter 12 where the dead are revived and some are revived to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Clearly, that's a future event. that happens at the end of time when Christ comes again. So a number of scholars believe that the horrific Antiochus IV becomes a type of a wicked figure at the end of history. That is, he points towards the one that the New Testament will, in some places, call the Antichrist. Professor Dale Davis sums it up. He says, in Antiochus, one sees a foreshadowing, a scale model of the final opponent of God's people. The final scourge will be like Antiochus Epiphanes, only more and worse. 
Now, this kind of language and description is picked up again in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he writes about a man of lawlessness, which is another name for the Antichrist. He says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And listen to the similarity of language here. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. And Jesus is going to refer um, in both Matthew and Mark to this passage in Daniel as well as Jesus looks forward in time. Professor Ian Duguid says that in Matthew 24, Jesus similarly anticipates a fulfillment that is yet future to him and is near. That is the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, just after Jesus' life. And another fulfillment, a final fulfillment, that's far into the future at the end of all things. He says, history will not come to a conclusion, it appears, until the coming of another Antiochus-like king. So this section is not just the future for people in, in 500 BC. This is the future for all God's people. This is our future. Right? Just as those early verses from verses 2 to 35 were prophecies of future suffering for the people of God then, so these closing verses speak of future suffering for God's people, including us, too, when the one called the Antichrist comes at the end of time in particular. So just as the purpose of the future predictions were intended to help the people in Daniel's day be ready for a difficult future, so these closing verses in chapter 11 serve the same purpose for God's people. They are warning us to be ready for great suffering as we follow Jesus. Here's a good summary. The bottom line is instructive, Dale Davis says. It's as if the Lord says to us, you must be prepared. In the world you have tribulation, but don't think too much of the tribulator. For though he may be dreadfully terrifying, he will be easily disposed of. That should put steel in our bones in case we have to face the final scourge of history. So like the birds and the waves and the dolphins and the elephants warned the Mokin. Daniel 11 warns us, be prepared to suffer in following your God. Expect it. Be prepared for it. And it, it doesn't simply mean stockpiling goods and starting a militia up in the mountains of West Virginia. Okay? Um, the response is to strengthen our faith now so we can endure now hardship and still be faithful to our God. Now Jesus talks about being ready in Mark chapter 13 when he says, and talks about future, our future, he talks about suffering. He says, be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all, by all for my name's sake. 
but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So again, the, the primary idea is not simply to wait until you see the signs of the end and hide. When Jesus talks about being on your guard, he's talking about being on your guard now by learning to suffer with hope now, to endure and persevere now. And one of the many essential things you must grasp if you're going to be able to suffer and endure it is what the angel kept reassuring Daniel about in these latter visions. Three times, remember, he told Daniel this message. In chapter 9, verse 23, he told Daniel, Daniel, you are greatly loved by God. And then in verse 11 of chapter 10, he said, Oh, Daniel, you are a man greatly loved by God. And then in verse 19, he says to Daniel, Oh, man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And what I take from that is that you need to have a firm grasp on God's love for you or you will not be able to trust him such that you can persevere in faithful suffering. You should read the words of God. They're on almost every page of the Bible that shout to us of his love for his people. And you should cling to those as true for you. Here are just a couple of verses that I cling to on a regular basis to remind me that even I am loved by God. And I sometimes put my name in these verses to help me uh, claim them, trust and hope in them for me. Jesus says in John 15, and I read it this way, Larry, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Larry, abide in my love. And then Isaiah the prophet says this, Fear not, Larry, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Larry, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And then I, I love the perspective of Psalm 94. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your comforts or consolations, they cheer my soul. You know, it's it's so interesting that when Jesus talks about the future suffering of God's people, he also talks that it's going to be a time when the love of many will grow cold. Look, look at Matthew 24. He's again talking about the future suffering of God's people. And he says, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so we must endure in and by means of the love of God for us. This is our great help and hope in these, in these troubled times and even more troubled times in the future. And look with me real, real briefly at that closing verse again, the closing phrase actually of chapter 11. It contains a hint of the hope that we'll unpack more fully next week. At the end of verse 45, he says, yet, yet he shall come to his end, this, this future king, the lawless one, the Antichrist. He shall come to his end with none to help him. The Antichrist will meet his appointed end, as will all evil and suffering and sorrow at the return of our Lord Jesus on that day at the end of all things. This we know, and in this we hope. The kingdoms and empires of men will come to an end. This is almost unfathomable to us, that on the 4th of July, when we celebrate our great nation, that we grapple with the idea that one day the United States will come to an end. It will be no more. 
And this is decreed and appointed by God. All of the empires of men come to an end. But there is a kingdom that lasts forever. And unbelievably, we learn in Daniel of it from the lips of King Nebuchadnezzar himself. He speaks of God's kingdom and says it is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. And if there's one thing that's clear here, you want to be a citizen of this kingdom. If you're going to be a citizen of any kingdom, make sure that you get citizenship in God's forever kingdom. Do whatever it takes to get that citizenship. And what it takes is faith in God the Son, Jesus Christ, to be your sin bearer and to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness to the everlasting kingdom of light. From the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of God the Father. Professor Tremper Longman gives us a good summary to all of this. He says, God is in control in spite of present circumstances. In 6th century Babylon, it looked to the godly as if Babylon and then Persia were in control. But they weren't. In 2nd century Palestine, it looked as if Antiochus Epiphanes was in control, but he wasn't. In the 1st century of Jesus and Paul, it looked as if Rome was in control, but it wasn't. To Christians living 2,000 years after Jesus, it may look as if Satan is in control, but he isn't. God is in control. And because of that, we can have boundless joy and optimism in the midst of our struggles. And we do have struggles. Those struggles may be political or cultural, they may be emotional or psychological, they may be relational, but whatever the struggle, whatever the oppression, God is in control, and in spite, in spite of present circumstances, he will bring victory over evil and honor to those who remain faithful to him. The book of Daniel, he says, is a call to all God's people to remain steadfast in their love and obedience to him in spite of present turmoil. So what does it look like for you to hear and heed the warning of Daniel 11 about the suffering that is in the future of all of God's people, including you? Pray with me, please.